the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And for the hundredth time, I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And today's episode, another special, as we delve into our 10 favourite movie-related urban legends. I'm very excited to deep dive into these urban legends. Always fun to talk about. Let's get to it. Welcome to our 10 favourite movie-related urban legend. Now, when we've come to ranking these, it's just personal preference. These are 10 of our favourites. It's not anything more scientific than that. So if it's not your favourite, don't write in and complain. There are lots of other urban legends. We've just picked 10 out that we like, and we've just ranked them as we saw fit. Absolutely. And if you'd like to comment and let us know what your favourite movie-related urban legends are, you're more than welcome to, and we look forward to hearing what they are and whether you agree with some of ours. So, shall we begin at number 10? Number 10. We shall begin at number 10, and number 10 is going right back to the start of movie history, and it's 1895's arrival of a train at in the station at La Ciota or if you want the French title L'arrivée d'un train en gare de La Ciota. Now this is why Darren does all the pronunciations because I'm terrible at them so very grateful to you there. Everybody who's ever been a film fan will be aware of the first piece of cinema to ever grace the screens which was a train pulling into a station and allegedly caused mass hysteria and panic I bought into this, I always thought this was a real thing, but apparently there's no actual evidence that the audience has fled the cinema in pure terror, thinking a train was going to be heading straight into them. It's kind of vague on how this legend started, but if you check out this really great article from a website called Atlas Obscura called Did a Silent Film About a Train Really Caused an Audience to Stampede, it kind of delves into that there. But yeah, apparently no actual evidence, but for centuries we've kind of all been conditioned to believing in this urban legend and it just makes the whole beginnings of cinema sound far more exciting than they probably actually were. Yeah, I mean, it's 50 seconds of silent footage about a train pulling into a station and I guess that if you haven't seen that sort of thing before, it's a stunning spectacle, but is it stunning enough to make you think that there's an actual train coming through the cinema. I'm sceptical because I'm here in 2023. Maybe people were a little worried in 1895, but surely they knew it was on a screen. And the Lumiere brothers were quite well known in their pioneering 
of cinema. So by the time it got to the screen, I can't think there'd be anybody that said, well, rather than them show something, a moving image on a screen, that the Lumiere brothers are actually going to drive a train through a cinema. That's very elaborate. But as with a lot of these movie legends, it's a nice story. It's harmless enough. It's easy to debunk as well because, like you say, there's no accounts at the time of anybody running from the cinema or anybody knowing anybody else who ran from the cinema. So, like you say, it's adding that level of excitement to an event that was probably pretty exciting to start with, but you have to build up the story. You know, legends are built out of these sort of things. People will add things. It's a story from back in the past, and people who weren't there will either pretend they were there because there's lots and lots of examples in history about things happening. I mean, for instance, if you think about um, one of the infamous points of history of the Cray Twins, there's a particular pub in which something happened and somebody said that, well, if everybody was in that pub who said they were in that pub, that pub would have held about 50,000 people. So you get this thing. People will attach themselves to legends and boost the appeal by elaborating on what happened so it is a nice story but i'm with pretty much everybody else now in the fact that people enjoyed the movie but didn't think there was a train coming through the wall yeah and it is the founding myth original movie myth we couldn't record this episode without passing this tidbit of history by it was one that i genuinely believed because it was something that had been told through the ages but again uh, there's actually no supporting evidence. So I'd love to know who started this and how it's become such a strongly told story. Unfortunately, it's not true, but it's very fun to hear about. Number nine. Number nine. When is an Oscar win not an Oscar win? Or rather, when is an Oscar win actually an Oscar win? It's the story that Marissa Tomei won her Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for My Cousin Vinny by complete accident, and it should have gone to somebody else. Yeah, this is a very interesting one, a very kind of classist one as well. I've not seen the movie My Cousin Vinny. I wasn't really familiar with this whole scenario at the Oscars either, but if you head to TV tropes, they do discuss it in a bit more detail. So this is how the legend goes. Marissa Tomei's Dark Horse victory for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in 1992 for My Cousin Vinny was particularly shocking because an unknown in a Joe Pesci comedy beat out a bunch of acting heavyweights, including Judy Davis, Joan Plowright, Vanessa Redgrave and Miranda Richardson in a solid Oscar bait films. This led to a widely circulated story that presenter Jack Palance in a scatterbrained senior moment read the wrong name from the card. As the world learned in the 2017 Best Picture controversy, the envelope contains a card with just one name on it. So if Tomei really didn't deserve the award, it would be because the Pricewaterhouse representative put in the wrong card in the envelope. Once this was pointed out, a variation on the story emerged that Palance frustrated because he couldn't read the card just called out Tomei's name because it was still on the teleprompter. Except footage from the ceremony clearly shows him reading the card and the prompter would have already scrolled past the names anyway. The more reasonable explanation for Tomei's win is that the Academy 
within a mini trend of giving supporting actress to less established actresses in mainstream audience pleasing films. The previous two winners were Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost and Mercedes Ruel in The Fisher King. And the prestige vote was split between the other four nominees, allowing Tomei to squeak away with the win. Also, the aforementioned 2017 controversy showed that they won't admit they messed up. They'll just roll with it if they call a wrong winner. Part of the story was bunk. So, yeah, this one is easily explained. I think people were genuinely trying to look for breadcrumbs there to say, like, why she wasn't deserving of this win instead of actually accepting, no, this is who actually deserved to win this uh, Oscar that year. Yeah, if you look at the other nominees and you look at the other movies, so you've got Husbands and Wives, Enchanted April, Howard's End and Damage, all fairly heavyweight. Well, Howard's End is a bit more lightweight, but all Oscar bait, as it's been said. Whereas My Cousin Vinny is kind of a freewheeling comedy. It's fun. It's knockabout. It does have something to say, but it doesn't seem to be in the same company as the other nominees. However... There's no reason why Marissa Tomei shouldn't have won, because her performance is really good. As good as any of the others. It's just a different type of performance. And I think that because the Oscars generally hand out stuff to slightly more worthy content, I guess Marissa Tomei winning was a little bit of a shock. But then again, as you've said, Mercedes Rule and Whoopi Goldberg won as well. So it was that mini trend of almost the underdog winning the award. And I don't know, because, you know, you've got an American, an Australian and three Brits. So maybe at that point they just thought, we're sick of Brits winning the fucking Oscars. Let's give it to somebody a bit closer to home. That is just my own spin on it. And it probably is complete rubbish. But there's no reason why Marissa Tomei got this by default or accident, because her performance is just as good, if not better, than any of the other people nominated that year. I think people just thrive on publicity stunts. I mean, if we go back to the whole Chris Rock and Will Smith debacle, that shows that people are just craving drama, especially with the Oscars and knowing that people are going to go head to head for these awards and that kind of thing. With that Will Smith scenario, people were building on it and saying it was publicity stunt. And I think, as I say, people just thrive on creating more and more drama instead of actually seeing a simple explanation for something. Yeah, exactly. And as they said, the moonlight stroke La La Land debacle of 2017, where La La Land won the Oscar for all of 30 seconds before they announced moonlight. They will clear it up fairly quickly. And there is one name on the card. And for whatever reason, La La Land was announced. And I think everybody kind of expected it to be La La Land. And it didn't end up being that. I'm not going to swing either side of the fence about whether La La Land is better than Moonlight, apart from the fact that Moonlight is the better film. Very different films. So Absolutely, different yeah. Different yeah. <laughs> Number eight. At number eight, it's the parade in a Batman movie. But what specifically about the parade is odd? Well, it's the dollar bills. Batman is, of course, one of the most iconic superheroes of all time, and Tim Burton's 1989 rendition is still very much a popular movie, and it starred Jack Nicholson in a demented performance as the Joker, which is, again, very much iconic. This urban legend has actually messed with my brain slightly. So here goes. Reading from TV Tropes. 
there's a widespread urban legend that the parade seen in Batman 1989 has an alternate version where the people notice the bills all have the Joker's face on them, in reference to an early scene where the Joker tells Vicky he wants his face on the $1 bill. This is probably due to the fact that this very thing happens in the comic book novelization. However, while the money in the film itself is pretty obviously fake, we never get a close enough shot to make out the face on the bills and no evidence of an alternate scene has ever turned up. Now, as I say, this one really messed with my brain because I can envision seeing the Joker on the dollar bills. Like, I remember this scene in my head. So clearly this is some sort of Mandela effect or definitely misremembering somewhere. And for me, I would never have read the novelizations, so I can't even say that that's where I picked it up from. Again, as we talked about in our Mandela Effect episodes, I'm going to put it down to people hearing something and then picturing it in their mind, very much like the Avril Lavigne Skater Boy music video. So that is what I'm putting it down to. There's a line of dialogue about it and you're just imagination running wild. I don't think there's anything more to it than that. Clearly, there's no alternate scene being found. It's just one of those things where... People imagine something happened that actually didn't. Yeah, and like you say, the line of dialogue about his face being on the dollar bill, it sows the seed there. So when it gets to the parade and there are the dollar bills, then your mind is making that connection, a connection which actually isn't there. But that's quite an interesting way of how this manifests itself. I went back and watched Batman, or at least watched the parade bit in Batman. And I did not see the Joker's face on the dollar bill. Like the article said, you don't really get to see the bills in close-up, so you can't spot anything. And when I tried to pause it a couple of times without much success, I'm pretty sure they're not there. But, as you say, if people hear this, it's your brain making a connection later in the movie, thinking, oh yeah, I remember him saying that he wants his face on the dollar bill. Yeah, maybe when the dollar bills start raining down, his face is on the dollar bill. So it's a perfectly decent explanation as to why something seems to happen but actually doesn't. Number seven. Coming in at number seven, something slightly darker than the dollar bills. It's from The Wizard of Oz, specifically a hanged munchkin in the back of one of the sequences. Yes, incredibly dark. I think The Wizard of Oz has always had this eerie undertone to it when it comes to the behind-the-scenes facts about film. It's very much a childhood staple for, I think, everybody. Everybody remembers their first time seeing The Wizard of Oz. I was transfixed by it as a child. I watched it on multiple occasions. But it wasn't until the era of Snoops.com that I discovered this urban myth about a hanging munchkin just to add a more disturbing edge to the whole movie. This is how the legend goes. This is very much similar to the Three Men and a Baby legend that we have discussed in its own separate episode. So you're kind of going to have a similar vibe here. So again, TV Trope says, there is one scene just after meeting the Tin Man where you can see an odd bit of movement in the far background. Rumours say this is either a stage hand or one of the munchkin actors either falling out of a tree or hanging himself because he was rejected by the woman he loved. It's actually a large bird, one of many you can see during the rest of the Tin Man scene. Not only would it have been impossible for an actor to have died in plain sight without anyone noticing, 
especially given that the extremely hot stage lights used for colour filming would have made the body reek. So <laughs> grim. So grim. <laughs> the forest scenes were filmed before the Munchkin Land scenes, so no Munchkin actors would have ever been present. And I think that's the problem. People don't apply logic when it comes to understanding movie making. Of course, they're not going to have every single actor on set at the same time if that's not necessary. Everything is going to be shot in stages. People just don't apply logic. And it is very much the equivalent of the Ted Dance and Cardboard Cutout being in the background. It's just a bird in the background. But people just like to create controversy. And I think that's where this whole myth came from. I mean, it's certainly unsettling, especially in the pre-DVD era. I think if you're seeing it on a grainy VHS or something, that it is going to play with your mind a bit more. Plausible explanation, but a very spooky legend all the same. Yeah, and now you can get Crystal Flare versions of The Wizard of Oz on brand spanking new 4K and Blu-ray and all of this stuff, then you can actually see in the background that it is not a hanged munchkin. It is a large bird of some sort. But as you say, blurry VHS, stuff in the background, could be anything. And you're right, people want to expand the legend of a movie that's already got quite a few legends springing up about it anyway. It's human nature. It's like, what's the worst thing that could happen on a movie set? Somebody dies. Right, okay. How could they die? How dreadful could somebody die on a movie set? Oh, they could be hanged somewhere. Let's have somebody hanged in the back of this. So, yeah, it's just human beings taking a scenario and making it the grimmest possible outcome of this. And you're right. I mean, if you're on a movie set, firstly, they're going to shoot it with just the actors that they need. But if they're filming it and there's somebody hanging in the background, is anybody going to spot that? I think so. They're not going to film the sequence and then go, oh, by the way, there's, there's somebody dead in the background there. Can we shoot it again? Oh, well, nobody will notice. When you start unpicking it, it is ridiculous. But people like to believe ridiculous things. The more outlandish and the more ghoulish, the better. This myth about the hanged munchkin would persist because it's far less interesting to say, well, actually, it isn't anybody dead in the background. It's just a big bird. That's boring. Now, somebody hanging themselves over a failed romance, that's far more tragic and that's far better to tell a story. But unfortunately, in this case, well, fortunately for, for the munchkin, it's just yet another example of a chilling story without any facts to back it up. There's a lot of movie stories about did you know that somebody died on this movie? And in almost every single case, it's nothing of the sort. You know, maybe people died elsewhere later on. We're going to be coming to one of those later on in the list. It's that craving for excitement or something that's going to take you into the dark side of humanity. And for them to just say, oh, no, it was just a bird in the back and it just looks a bit blurry. That's really dull. It's like, no, no, who died? Who died on the movie? Well, in this case, nobody. Yeah, and very much like the three men and a baby speculation where it was that a child had been shot and when the mum first saw the film in the cinema and saw her son, she was beside herself. And it's this exaggerated 
storytelling that it's so fascinating and i'm guessing with the wizard of oz this rumor must have began in the vhs era there's without a doubt about it i don't think it would have been during its cinema release or subsequent cinema releases i'm pretty sure vhs would have kick-started this as it has with many but where do they get these ideas from about oh it was a munchkin that was in love with someone who who was rejected and and you couldn't go on. I mean, who starts creating these and how do they spread so widely? Especially this is pre-internet era too. Very interesting stuff. I'd love to get into the origins of these, but again, because they're urban myths, we'll never truly know. But someone out there could be sitting there thinking, yep, I started that. <laughs> and of course, we've got a dual urban legend with The Wizard of Oz. We can't pass it by without discussing. Quite a interesting one where... There is a legend that the Pink Floyd album, The Dark Side of the Moon, syncs up with the film's soundtrack. This legend has been vigorously denied by the band, who have pointed out that the audio technology necessary to make the film soundtrack and a rock album sync, this precisely didn't exist in 1973. It says, the angry video game nerd was inspired by urban legends of The Dark Side of the Moon syncing to this film soundtrack. When Nerd reviewed the video game adaptation, Cinemassacre deliberately synced the album to their episode and placed in a few bits and clues like a plane to make the syncing work, as described in the blog. So again, I've always found this one really interesting, and I have actually seen how it's been synced up via a YouTube video. This was a very long time ago, and I was quite blown away by it. It's very clever. But of course, if the band are denying it and saying the technology wasn't there, it's definitely more like a coincidence and speculation probably yeah but who knows with pink floyd i think it probably is a myth and they're right about the technology syncing up with the movie it's difficult for it to do that especially when they recorded it back then but it's interesting how certain points of the album kind of match up with certain points of the movie but you have to start it at certain points of the movie as well so it's not kind of a like-for-like like comparison. But again, interesting, and interesting to understand the workings of somebody who actually watched The Wizard of Oz and then heard Dark Side of the Moon and thought, yeah, they're similar, and they kind of run parallel. So it's imagination running riot again, which is interesting, and it's more interesting than just having a boring take on the movie. Regardless of how fanciful it is, and regardless of how inaccurate or just plain wrong it is it's better to have these things around i like the fact that these things are out there and people are positing these theories even though they're really really wacky things like the uh, room 237 the series about the shining i mean some of those are just so out there that when i watched it i was like there, there is no way i could get that comparison between this that you're saying and anything in the shining but that's how people work and it's more fascinating than just taking a movie at face value and saying well you know there we go it's a movie it's fine it's done it's an interesting glimpse into how obsessive people get about certain films and albums and various bits of media content so whereas some of them I think go a little too far and obsession does have its own problems which we have no time to go into here as long as they're harmless and the wackier the better then i'm quite up for some of these things 
Yeah, I always remember specifically the sound of the heartbeat on the Tin Man sequence. And I think it kind of ended there. I may be misremembering, but that always stuck out to me about it. It's a clever idea, but again, people have just put two and two together and made five. It's just the way people roll. Number six. At number six, it's Walt Disney's Frozen. Or is it Walt Disney and is he Frozen? This is an urban legend that we just can't let it go. Had to get that in there. Very common Disney urban legend. There is this bizarre theory that Walt Disney is cryogenically frozen and his body, or frozen head at least, is stored underneath the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in his original park in California. It's been a myth that has been overplayed for so long. And Disney's response to it as a company was to create a movie, one of their best-selling movies of all time, Frozen. So when you type in Disney's Frozen into Google, you'll get the whole movie with Elsa and Anna and Olaf coming up before you'll see anything about this really dark conspiracy surrounding Walt Disney's cryogenically frozen head. Yeah, again, weird story. And Walt Disney was looking into this sort of thing. He was interested in cryogenics. But for anybody that thinks that they can go to Disney's locations and then somehow stumble upon Uncle Walt frozen, I'm afraid you're going to be very disappointed because that did not happen. Now, there's all sorts of strange, weird rumours about the Pirates of the Caribbean ride also, where um, they actually used real-life skeletons as props in the ride. I believe that is true. So then there are further claims that the ride is haunted. There's also rumours that Walt Disney's ghost walks the parks. There's all kinds of really crazy, creepy stuff. Lots of fun. But I wouldn't be surprised if the truth in this legend is that in order to counteract people searching for this urban legend was to actually call the movie Frozen. I mean, it could have been a pure coincidence, but I, I do like to think that that was... Disney's retaliation there. It's an interesting theory because, yeah, you're just going to get a million Google searches about the Frozen movie and then the Walt stuff is going to come very, very far down the list. And it's still a subject that people are quite interested in, both cryogenics and Walt Disney being frozen. But the fact of the matter is Walt was cremated a couple of days after he died, so Good luck in cryogenically frozen any of that, because how you can create it from Walt's ashes, I mean, I don't think even Herbert West in Reanimator could salvage any of that. But again, it's that willingness to believe the wacky theory that Walt somehow wanted to live on, and the only way he could live on was to die and be cryogenically frozen and then come back when the technology caught up and then you could be revived from the dead. It's an age-old thing about coming back after you've died. There are, um, well, not a million, but there are, there are lots and lots and lots of horror movies dealing with that subject. There are lots of non-horror movies dealing with that subject. It's something which has fascinated people probably since time began. Where do you go when you die? Can you come back? And this is just an extension of this with a Disney spin and Walt being frozen somewhere. And of course, they couldn't have him frozen just anywhere. 
there's got to be mysteries about where he's buried and what bits of him they froze and when's he going to come back and but the family have pretty much debunked it. But everybody says, oh, well, you know, the family would say that, wouldn't they? He's probably frozen somewhere, but they don't want people to go looking for him. And my feeling is that the fact that he was cremated a couple of days after his death kind of means that we won't be seeing Walt in that particular form any time in the future. Maybe they'll advance DNA technology so much that you can get a few ashes and then create something out of that. We're going into the realms of science fiction here. So I'm sorry, folks. If you want to see Walt come back, I think you're going to be waiting an awfully long time. And to add another spooky layer to this urban legend, there is a more recent myth that I don't know if it's widely popularised. I saw it on a YouTube video during COVID time. So basically... If you put Frozen on Disney Plus and you start the movie at midnight, as the movie starts, you're meant to see a flash of Walt Disney's face on the screen before the movie. And I think various YouTubers did test it out, but nothing actually happens. But it's that kind of scare yourself late at night kind of tactic. But again, completely fictional and fabricated. Yeah, it's like all those things. If you go out into the woods and you say somebody's name, that they'll come and kill you. It's that sort of thing. But it's transported into a the start of a movie, and it's like you know you can. It's the Gremlins thing, you know. Don't feed them after midnight. Midnight's a very popular time for really weird things happening. I'm skeptical. I haven't tried it myself. I might do, but I'm not expecting to see a face. No, you'll just get a really. Nice feel-good Disney movie, which I can imagine you watching at midnight, Darren. That is a bizarre concept, me putting Disney movies on at midnight instead of Grindhouse horror movies. It's something to try, and I've got to say that I will be impressed if I do see Walt's scary face lurching out at me as the movie starts, then I will take it all back. Number five. So at number five... Fargo, the Coen Brothers movie, is supposedly based on a true story, which itself has been debunked. But did a woman die in Minnesota going after the fictional loot that was portrayed in the movie Fargo? Now, I have never seen Fargo, so I have genuinely just spoiled it for myself in terms of researching for the podcast. But that's fine. It wasn't a movie that was on my like top, top to watch list, but I've heard very good things about it. Can't even tell you why I haven't seen it, so don't come for me. But yeah, I found this one very interesting in how a legend can start and how you can link things up that aren't actually there. But I think this one is a very weird coincidence. Yeah, the urban legend is that there was a Japanese woman called uh, Takako Kanishi who was found dead in Minnesota in 2001, and they said that she had gone looking for the buried treasure from the movie, which is kind of a weird thing. But as we've said in previous ones, obsession can take many forms. Obsession could actually get to a point where you believe in movies so inherently that you think all the characters and the events in the movie, even if they're fictionalized slightly, they're based in fact so much that they must be true including the fact that there is buried treasure 
out in the wilds of Minnesota somewhere. The reality for this one is a lot more tragic, unfortunately. And it's true that this woman was found dead in 2001 in Minnesota. But sorry to say that this poor woman committed suicide. And actually because of a broken heart, allegedly. They couldn't find out too much detail. She sent a suicide note to her family in Japan, but the details are vague on what drove her to it. But there was suggestion that she was having an affair with a married man, so died of a broken heart. And then I think this also originated because at the beginning of the movie Fargo, they tease you to thinking it's based on a true story, but then the Coen brothers have come out more recently and and stated that it's never been based on a true story. The whole movie was a work of fiction. So it's interesting how people can link these two things up. And again, it's that whole thing, putting two and two together and making five. Yeah. Well, I can pick another random number, but we'll well, go with exactly. five now. Get yeah, my point across. <laughs> it is interesting. I mean, I've seen Fargo a few times. And even when I saw it first off, and there's this thing about saying that it's all based on true events, and they've changed some of the names to protect uh, the innocent and the guilty. When I was watching it, I was thinking, this is so out there. This is so wacky. How could this be a true story? I think that they're pulling the audience's leg here. It kind of adds to the mythos around the film. And at the end, even if you don't believe a word of it, which I didn't, I'm a great movie, loved it, but I thought there's no way this story is true. But at the same time, a little part of me thought, I wish it was true, though, because it is such a bizarre story that on one level, it could only be true, but it isn't, unfortunately. Unfortunately, this poor woman, she is still dead out there in the Minnesota wasteland and people are attaching urban legends to this based on a movie, which is quite gruesome, I have to say. It's the sort of thing where art crosses over with life in a way that I'm not particularly comfortable with because they're serving up this poor woman's suffering kind of as a form of entertainment. Now, if it's somebody, if it's like the Munchkin and Wizard of Oz, we know nobody died there. And it's kind of a grisly story. It's a story. That's all it is. Here, you've got somebody with an actual life that was ended. And that sits quite uncomfortably with me, I have to say. Number four. At number four, we have The Curse of Poltergeist. Did the classic horror movie have some sort of weird and deadly spell on the members of its cast? This is quite a tragic one. And I think it's a very sensitive one to be discussing, so... The tone is probably going to change a little bit here because real people did die. Young people, it's a very, very sad one. Poltergeist is obviously the Toby Hooper directed, Steven Spielberg produced iconic horror movie. It's a bit more of a light horror movie in the sense it isn't particularly gory, but it has lots of spooky elements to it. I believe it was quite frightening at the time when it came out, especially the idea of it. So I'm on the Urban Legend wiki page to give you some background about this legend. I'm sure many will be aware of it, though, as it's quite a popular one. 
Possibly one of the more creepy movie urban legends comes from the Poltergeist trilogy of films. The urban legend revolves around the tragic deaths of four cast members who died during the six years between the first and third films, between 1982 and 1988. This rumour was often fueled by the fact that real skeletons were used as props during certain scenes in the two Poltergeist films. Now, again, very much like the Pirates of the Caribbean ride and the use of real skeletons to make things look more authentic, there is the whole rumour, I believe it is true, that they did use real skeletons from like a medical centre in the scenes in Poltergeist. It's in that grotesque pool scene. But again, I don't know whether I'm thinking that that is a real thing or whether somebody made it up to add fuel to the fire, so to speak. Going through the tragic deaths from the movie, the first cast member to die by the curse was 22-year-old Dominique Dunn. Dunn had previously broken up with her abusive boyfriend. He showed up at her West Hollywood house after she agreed to talk to him outside, and he strangled her into a coma in the driveway. She was placed on life support and never regained consciousness, dying on November 4th, 1982, after being declared brain dead. Very, very sad. The second cast member to die by the curse was 60-year-old Julian Beck, who portrayed Henry Kane in Poltergeist to the other side. Beck, who had been diagnosed with stomach cancer in 1983, succumbed to the disease on September 14th, 1985. Third cast member to die by the curse was 53-year-old Will Sampson, who portrayed Taylor in Poltergeist to the other side. Samson died on June 3rd, 1987, post-operative kidney failure and pre-operative malnutrition problems after undergoing a heart and lung transplant. And the fourth and final cast member to die by the curse was 12-year-old Heather O'Rourke, who died on February 1st, 1988, during surgery to repair an acute bowel obstruction. Now, I think that these are all very, very tragic coincidences. I don't really believe that these people appeared in this film caused... Um, all of this to happen to them, I just think it's very, very awful circumstances. Yeah, I mean, you've got two guys there who were obviously fairly sick and succumbed to their illnesses. Heather O'Rourke, it's a tragedy, and I think there's still some conjecture about how she died. Um, But again, that clearly was health issues. Dominique Dunn was filming a completely different movie at the time when she was attacked by her uh, ex-boyfriend. It was uh, the sci-fi miniseries V and that clearly had a massive impact on a lot of the people that were filming with her on that sci-fi series and that's documented elsewhere. So like you say it is just a set of tragic coincidences but as with a lot of things popular entertainment things like big movies or long-running tv series you do get these curses that spring up and they say, you know, this this TV series has got a curse attached to it because big casts have people die. The probability of a long-running TV series that has passed into historical memories for our viewers, every time somebody out of that series grows older and then passes away, oh, there's a curse surrounding the series. If you have a group of people who are all getting older, the probability is quite a lot of these people will end up dying off at different times. And it's not a curse. But again, as we've been saying, it's spookier and it's more interesting that there is a curse around it. You know, this whole thing about cursed sets, like The Exorcist. The set of The Exorcist was apparently cursed because they had all sorts of weird things going off. Now, 
I've heard people speak about the Exorcist, people who worked on it, people who acted in it. They just say, well, it was an odd movie to start with. Lots of weird things were taking place on set anyway. And there was nothing really around that other than what was taking place and what was staged. That's a boring story. You want The Exorcist to be the most haunted movie in history because of the subject matter. And when you find out it isn't, that's kind of a letdown. Same with this. I mean, Poltergeist, you've got four cast members across three films. So it's not just one movie. You're talking about the entire series. The Poltergeist original movie isn't particularly cursed. Neither is the second one, neither is the third one. You've got to have them as an entire entity and then say, across the trilogy, four of the cast members are no longer with us. However, Joe Beth Williams, who is the mum in the first film, she's still around. Craig T. Nelson, who is the dad in the first film, he's still around. The Poltergeist curse hasn't got either of those yet. Now, I hope that isn't putting the jinx on either Joe Beth or Craig. I hope it doesn't. I hope I don't finish this recording and then find out one of them's had a piano dropped on them or something. Yeah, I think, as you say, it's very far-fetched when you take into account that it is across the trilogy, not just the first movie, with the whole rumour about the real-life skeletons. So, is this movie haunted? I think it's just mixing that up with the film subject matter, that it is a film about people being terrorised by the supernatural. It's just people, again, putting all these elements, all the eggs in the basket, and then just coming up with these big ideas and... For the families of the deceased, it must be quite a hard one to have to hear about because that was their loved one. And I think sometimes it can be a bit insensitive. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to keep hearing this about the movie, especially the family of Dominique Dunn, because that's a horrendous thing that happened to her. And to have people continually raking it up about, oh, it's the curse of poltergeist. They don't want to hear that. I mean, I don't want to hear that either, right? Because it's an absolute tragedy what happened to her. She was clearly destined for bigger things. And certainly I've read something recently. Faye Grant, who starred with her in, in the... Well, she was going to star with her in the V series. They obviously had to reshoot it. But she said she remembered hanging around with her on set. And she said there was no way that she wasn't going to be a big star, which makes it even more upsetting. Yeah, they don't want to hear it. It's one of those times where the urban legend should be left to rest because it's about actual people with awful things happening to actual people and for people to keep coming in and saying, oh, well, you know, this movie was cursed. That's why they died. Yeah, we've all seen horror movies. We've all seen things where cursed objects cause the death of a load of people. That's all well and good within the confines of a horror movie. But when you're talking about real life, as you say, it's... Well, I was going to say it's slightly insensitive. No, it's not just slightly insensitive. It's really fucking insensitive. So I think this is one of those legends where people should just let it go. Number three. So at number three, we have Aladdin and we have a particular line of dialogue in Aladdin. Did they actually say that? So I actually have personal experience with this urban legend and I want to confidently tell you that this is real. But because of Disney trying to hide this and remove it, it makes it very difficult to actually say confidently that this was a real thing. But 
I can promise you, I did hear this. So, the urban legends, it says on Slate.com in an article, why everyone thought Aladdin had a secret sex message. <laughs> now, Aladdin is my favourite Disney movie of all time. It's one of the first ones I remember watching as a child. I had quite a lot of merch from Aladdin. I even love the remake. Like, I've seen the stage show. I absolutely love Aladdin. So this is kind of shocking if this subliminal message did exist. I'll just read a brief summary of the article to give you the context of this period in VHS era and Disney history, especially in the Renaissance. If you were a kid in the 90s, or even if you weren't, the rumours were as familiar as white vinyl VHS case. Did you know there's a hidden phallus on the cover art for The Little Mermaid? And by the way, the minister definitely pops a boner during the wedding scene. Oh, and there's a cloud spelling sex floating over Simba and the Lion King. Perhaps most iconically of all in Aladdin, as the titular prince tries to woo Princess Jasmine for a magic carpet ride from her balcony, he secretly whispers some levacious words to the adolescent audience. Good children, take off your clothes. Now, when I first heard about this rumour, so I was about... 16-ish, I'd place myself there. Me and my friend were obsessed with researching stuff on snoops.com. It was just the thing we did. E-Bombs World Snoops, that was the buyback from the mid-2000s. And we were stunned by this legend. So we decided to stick in the VHS tape and listen for ourselves. And I can honestly vouch that we heard good children take off your clothes in a whispered voice. It's the scene where Aladdin is trying to woo Princess Jasmine and Raja the tiger is growling at him, snarling at him. He's kind of backing away and you just hear this whisper, good children, take off your clothes. And we had to play it back several times and each time we heard it. In the subsequent DVD and Blu-ray releases and on Disney+, Plus, Disney have removed all trace of this. So it's very difficult to find. And I don't have the means at the moment to play my VHS copy, but... I can honestly say in the mid-2000s, me and my friend listened to it and we definitely heard that line of dialogue. It was in there. Now, whether it was in all the VHSs or it was taken out of some, just depending on when they were released, I'm pretty confident that I did own the original VHS release of Aladdin, though. So I, I do believe this one. I'm going to say I, I know what I heard. It's an interesting one because I can't verify it because I did not have... Aladdin on VHS, and I did not see it on VHS either. So I can't go back and trace whether or not it's there. It could be a variation on what's called the McGurk effect. The McGurk effect is if your eyes are telling you one thing and the sound is telling you another, your brain will actually compensate to what your eyes are telling you. So it's not quite a McGurk effect. There are certain tests that you can do where if you listen to the same sound file, you can hear two different things. That doesn't seem to hold all that much water either. Yes, there is that possibility that if you've been told what a line of dialogue is going to be and you're listening for it, you will hear that line of dialogue. But it's very specific as well. It's not just one or two words. It's a phrase. So to hear the entire phrase is quite interesting because if it was just a word and like there's a wind in the background and you can hear the word on the wind, yeah, I can buy that. You can twist that wind noise 
into a word but if it's more than one word and well good children well six words isn't it if you've got six words that's less and less probable that you can hear that by accident and if more than a few people have heard it you kind of wonder whether or not that has actually been slipped into the soundtrack here and subsequently somebody in the sound department has said right okay when this is coming back out we've got to get rid of this i mean i'm on the fence about this one because i can see why disney would remove it it's not a great line of dialogue to put into a kids movie at the same time you know i mean they've got the means to remove it but is it on the original soundtrack it's an interesting one in terms of the movie legends we've got on the list this is the one that's most grounded in reality and this is the one that seems to have less of a conspiracy theory about it because i don't think anybody's getting too wound up about it not like the whole kazam shazam thing where people will swear blind that there's this other movie that exists with sinbad in it clearly doesn't the fact that it's less hysterical in terms of the people that are trying to prove it kind of gives it a bit more credence as well if people are sort of screaming about a movie that doesn't exist you just think oh complete nut job whereas if you've got people who say well i heard it but they're not banging the drum about it it's like i heard it and it's not there anymore and i wonder what happened to it it's probably the most interesting one in the list in terms of provability because if it was heard by a number of people then it's the sort of thing where you kind of think well if that many people heard it can you actually deny it but as you say the proof on digital versions is not there absolutely and i can accept that it could be that whole thing of hearing what you want to hear but i wasn't necessarily saying that i wanted to hear it but i genuinely did what interests me is why have disney decided to cover this up and remove it if it wasn't there that is my argument because if it was as innocent as what they're claiming it was, which was the line of whisper dialogue is good kitty take off and go or scat kitty or something like that. If it was something like that, but the, the lines of dialogue are not exactly on the same level. You you know the difference if you heard it. So I think it's very suspicious of Disney to cover this up and remove it. I mean, I had it on DVD as soon as the DVD came out, I bought it. And I think maybe the rumour intensified at that point because obviously... It wasn't there. And if you watch it on Disney Plus, you're not going to hear that line of dialogue. So hmm, it's all very shady, I think. And I think there must be some truth in it. I mean, there was the whole flash of naked woman in The Rescuers. That actually happened. An animator was playing a joke. Back then, they obviously thought they could be a bit more risque compared to nowadays, where I don't think anything like that would slide with a modern Disney film. With this one, it, again, it just could have been somebody having a bit of a joke and seeing if anyone noticed it. Or, you know, maybe they just wanted to create their own conspiracy and have a bit of fun with it. But it was definitely there. And one day I will dig out this VHS and I will have to listen to it again. But I'm fearful of it because if it's not there, I'm obviously going mad. <laughs> <laughs> if we ever get to the VHS, then we will actually put in a subsection of this in one of the episodes in future. Almost at the end of the list, but still a couple to go. Number two, I Am Legend 
or is it? I am the story of coronavirus. Yeah, this was a bit mind-blowing because I hadn't actually heard about this until we were researching, but I did see uh, the movie I Am Legend quite a few years ago. But obviously, it just did not stick with me, the facts that have come along with this. According to BuzzFeed, in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, people started to draw comparisons between real life and the 2007 Will Smith film I Am Legend, which they said was set in 2021 and was about people turning to zombies after taking a failed vaccine. This was another internet-fueled urban legend and one that perhaps proves that despite now having all the information in the world at our fingertips, we're a lot dumber than we were before. Yeah. I say this because Snoop pointed out basically everything about this urban legend is inaccurate and easily proved wrong. How wrong? Well, the movie was set in 2012, not 2021. Smith was tangling with vampires, not zombies, and the outbreak wasn't caused by a vaccine but an attempt to cure cancer that went wrong. Again, all of these details are easily found online, either by streaming the movie or reading about it on a number of websites. But a meme that people share without vetting spread this urban I am legend far and wide. Yeah, this is totally a modern day internet culture, ridiculous legend. I mean, I think with memes, they, they're just so memorable. You're so frequently posted, they just stick in your mind and you don't think anything of it. So, I mean, I think if the movie had been set in 2021 and the parallels with the vaccines were there i think this would hold a lot more weight but but i think people are trying to draw the strings here basically yeah coronavirus or rather the thought of coronavirus and the thought of how it would start and spread turned a lot of people into lunatics unfortunately and the one thing you can't vaccinate against is stupidity and there was a lot of stupidity going around in the pandemic and People were trying to attach anything to coronavirus as perhaps a solution for all of society's ills. Very much like in the 80s where why are people killing each other? Why are people behaving so badly? Why are things going really wrong in the UK? Oh, it's violent videos. Let's talk about violent videos. That's every solution to society's ills. If we ban videos, then we're all going to be all right. Nonsense then, nonsense now. Same thing with coronavirus. People are so scared that they have to attach some meaning. And, you know, they'll have conspiracies about that the vaccine causes all sorts of other things. You know, you can pick up really good 5G if you've been vaccinated, apparently, because there's chips in there. There's all sorts of nonsense floating around. And people do this sort of thing when they get scared and they're not being informed properly. And more duplicitously, some people just feed on this sort of stuff. They want to make people feel scared and uninformed, which is where extremism takes root. So at the back of it, there's something quite evil going on. Not to do with the movie, but it does point to a wider sickness in society where people will prey on the vulnerable and say like look you should be scared of this you should be scared of coronavirus you know you shouldn't be getting the vaccine they put stuff in it they'll be able to trace you if you get injected you'll never be able to escape it it's a government conspiracy 50 years down the line i may sound really stupid because 50 years down the line it may have proved to be a government conspiracy and somebody will be listening to this podcast maybe and say this guy's a fucking idiot he didn't know what was going on at all but <laughs> at this point in time with the information i have 
I think people have gone off the deep end a bit about coronavirus. And it was scary and it was something none of us had gone through before and we all had to change the way we lived. But some people reacted to it far worse than others. And it's those people that reacted far worse that are more vulnerable to unscrupulous people taking their fear and saying, well, this is why you should be scared. That was very deep. It but was. I do agree with you. <laughs> very <laughs> profound on this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, I do agree with you. And I think during the pandemic, especially, I had to turn away from a lot of things said online because, you know, people are in isolation. There's mass hysteria. People are fear mongering all the time. And I think you just have to be smart about things and not read too deeply. And I think if people bought into the whole I am legend myth, then I think obviously it's quite a lot of naivety going on there. What was definitely a playful meme obviously sparked something and triggered people. These things are easily triggered. We don't we can't downplay the pandemic. As you say, it was a terrifying time. But you just have to be sensible about these things and not get too paranoid. And I think that's with urban legends as well. I think sometimes people generally read too deeply into them and convince themselves something's there that isn't. Yeah, didn't think we'd be philosophising over number two on the list, but there you go. We do serious on this podcast sometimes. Not very often, but we do. <laughs> so, so on that bombshell, before we come to number one, and our favourite in this list, we are going to go and have a look at some honourable mentions that didn't quite make the list, but we thought would be interesting to have a quick chat about. Okay, so the first one is a little bit more obscure and I don't know how much weight this has because I was just scrolling through the Scream subreddit as I do, huge Scream fan here, new movie had come out this year and I was just deep diving into everything and I came across this really odd theory and it was by a user called Awesome Source OP, and the post was made two years ago at the time of recording. This is what they had to say. Here's something that will really blow your mind. Scream 4 was filmed twice. The original killer was Rebecca Gayhart. They changed the killer mask from the ghost face mask to a goblin mask. That one was the bootleg that got out. The reason why it got canned and filmed again was due to the unfortunate death of a nine-year-old boy killed by Rebecca Gayhart while driving reckless in 2001. Now, this just seems incredibly random. Of course, Rebecca Gayhart did start in the movie The Legend in an iconic performance. And the tragedy about the nine-year-old boy is unfortunately true. But Scream 3 came out in 2000, and there's no way that by 2001 they were considering making 4, especially as Scream 3 at the time, it was the closing chapter of the trilogy. And the way they ended it was, yes, they leave the door open metaphorically and physically, but there was no plans in the pipeline to make another movie so soon. And that's what's quite bizarre, this person saying this. And then Scream 4 obviously came out in 2011. Again, it was one of those that was stuck in development hell for quite a while. But I don't know where the, where this person got these ideas from, but this is this goes to show how you can easily create a conspiracy theory online. You can just spout so much out. Now, as I say, I deep dive into the Scream 
the subreddits so often and I follow Beyond the Mask a YouTube channel as well which talks about what could have been in the Scream franchise like original script ideas that got scrapped and I've never heard about this before and I know quite a lot about all the unfilmed ideas from all of them and again this just is honestly weird. Rebecca Ahart was also in a very minor role in Scream 2, so whether they're implying that the random sorority girl is going to come back and be the killer, a little bit far-fetched, but again, very, very strange one. Yeah, she's extremely annoying in Scream 2 to great effect, but is she a killer? Well, they kind of posit that it might be her in Scream 2, but not really, because you know it's going to be somebody a bit more major than one of the annoying sporting characters. Why would they shoot Scream 4 twice? How much money would it cost to shoot a movie twice and then scrap the original version? That would cost many people their jobs at a studio. If you were there and said, oh, by the way, we've shot Scream 4, it's finished, but we don't really like it. So can we shoot it again? Most studios, in fact, I think every single studio would say, uh, no, you can't do that. The movie's already there. It is a weird one, that. I'm going to be kind and say it's fanciful. Uh, or I could be unkind and say it's absolute bullshit. So our next honourable mention, returning to BuzzFeed for this one. A man can be seen jumping off a bridge to his death in the background of a scene in the 1995 Leonardo DiCaprio film, The Basketball Diaries. If you look closely just above the left shoulder of the buff dude on the rock, a young Mark Wahlberg, you'll see just before he steps down a figure falling from the bridge. But was the figure someone falling to their death? According to Snoops, who did their usual close inspection, no. Contemporary news reports mention nothing of a suicide from the bridge, and James Mardio, one of the actors in the scene, told Snoops they saw and heard nothing out of the ordinary on the day they filmed. Furthermore, the figure doesn't appear to have arms or legs. What it most resembles is most likely is a garbage bag. Yeah, just pure coincidence again. A garbage bag might have happened to have fallen from the bridge during the shooting of that scene. Completely unplanned, unexpected, and I think we've definitely got another Wizard of Oz munchkin hanging on our hands with this one. Even in the editing suite, you might not even notice that's in the background. And if you did, you'd probably think, well, leave it in because it doesn't really affect any of the rhythm of the scene. But I guess anything dropping from bridges, it's like, oh, it's got to be a person. They've chucked themselves off the bridge. Again, it's this propensity for human beings to go with the grisliest scenario. And the fact is, it probably was a bag of rubbish getting chucked off the bridge. The fact that there was nothing around at the time and the news reports didn't confirm anything. Yeah, it's another story where can we hang something really gruesome on this movie? Especially as it's got somebody in it like DiCaprio now is a huge star. So it's like one of his earlier movies. But can we can we attach it to something really dreadful to make the movie a bit more interesting, give it a bit more pep? I mean, to be perfectly honest, the Basketball Diaries doesn't need any more pep because at one point there's a bloody school shooting in it. So I don't think that the movie needs anything more to sell it than that. I mean, it's handled with more decorum than I'm projecting it because when I say that, you think, oh God, what's it like? It's a fantasy sequence and you don't really see anything. It's quite disturbing, but it's dealt with with a sort of edge of black comedy as well. So. That's more disturbing and shocking than a garbage bag being chucked off a bridge. But it's the things people clutch onto. So our last honourable mention involves the film Back to the Future, specifically Back to the Future Part 2. So two urban legends tied into one here. 
The first is the hoverboard used by Marty McFly in Back to the Future 2 was real, and the only reason hoverboards were not sold to the general public was that parents' groups pressured the company to keep the dangerous toys unreleased. Man, if you were a kid in the 90s, you 100% heard this one. I'm pretty sure I confidently spread it to a bunch of kids myself. Obviously, it wasn't true. Hoverboards like the ones in the film still don't exist commercially to this day. And this was pure wish fulfillment on the part of the kids. As it turns out, no kids could be forgiven for believing it was true because this urban legend was started by none other than the director of Back to the Future films, Robert Zemeckis. So that is quite interesting that it came direct from the horse's mouth there. Imagine creating an urban legend so long lasting about your own movie. I mean, it's marketing gold, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. There was a TV special promoting the release of part two and about 25 minutes in, Zemeckis talks about the hoverboard technology and says, they've been around for years. It's just that parents groups have not let toy manufacturers make them, but we got our hands on some and we put them in the movie. Zemeckis delivered the line with a sly smile that indicated he was kidding, but most kids wouldn't pick up on that subtly and didn't. Very clever. Yeah, I love, I I love, <laughs> love Robert Zemeckis for doing that. The second urban legend, which is related again to the sequel to Back to the Future, is that it correctly predicted not only that Major League Baseball would add a team in Miami, but also that the newly formed Miami team would win the World Series in 1997. You've got to give it up for the makers of Back to the Future Part 2. They did indeed predict a future where a Major League Baseball had a team in Miami, something that in 1989 was still on the horizon. But the hologram news broadcast that Marty McFly sees when he visits 2015 says nothing about Miami winning the World Series in 1997. Instead, it says the Chicago Cubs swept Miami in the World Series, presumably in 2015. Not only that, but the Miami team in the hologram appears to be called the Gators and not the Marlins. Oh, and in 1997, the Marlins were called the Florida Marlins, not yet the Miami Marlins. Snoop summarised that someone likely misremembered the scene after the Marlins had won the series in 1997 and thought, hey, Back to the Future Part 2 predicted this, and the rumour caught on. So, yeah, absolutely. That's, again, similar to the I Am Legend one, people just making a mountain out of a molehill and just misremembering. But it's, it's quite a fun one. It's good to end on a fun, honourable mention. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And baseball fans are like, oh, yeah, they want to boost the team, and it's like they did mention us in Back to the Future. Who cares if the facts weren't right? And the fact it was the Gators. It's not as on the nose as the Mackie Swan talking about the hoverboards, but it's still fun. And it's a movie that's generated its own share of urban legends across the years. So I think it's nice to give Back to the Future at least some props, even if it's not in the main ten. Number one. Okay, we're at the end of the list now. It's been interesting and fun to talk through various urban movie legends, but we're now at our favourite in this list, number one. And number one delves into the mysterious world of Lindsay Lohan's twin. Where do I even begin? So the 1998 version of Parent Trap was probably one of my top childhood films. I remember going to see it in the cinema and it was my introduction to Lindsay Lohan as an actress like many. And I even remember as a kid thinking how fantastic it was that this one child actress was playing a dual role of twin sisters. The technology was revolutionary. The performance was so convincing that you bought into it that there was definitely two separate characters there. The 1998 Parent Trap is a remake of the 1960s Parent Trap starring Hayley Mills. 
who again is one actress playing the part of twins. So obviously that was the route they were going down when making this film. Now, the rumour has it that some people have convinced themselves that Lindsay Lohan had a twin sister who starred in the movie alongside her, who mysteriously died, was murdered, vanished. The the theories are endless. Now, again, this is one of those crazy internet rumours that are very hard to believe. So I'll preface this by saying, upon researching a little bit more about the casting process for The Parent Trap, Mara Wilson apparently auditioned for the dual roles, but was unsuccessful because they felt she wasn't old enough. Mara Wilson is not a twin, and she was a prominent child star at the time. Also, Scarlett Johansson, Alex McKenna, Michelle Trachtenberg, and Tina Majorino also tried out for the parts. Apparently, Michelle Trachtenberg was quite far in the running to play the twin girls in this film, but obviously lost out to Lindsay Lohan. So obviously in the casting director's mind, they weren't specifically looking for twins. And in one argument, people said, why didn't they just go for the Olsen twins for this? But the Olsen twins had already starred in a movie called It Takes Two, which is basically the parent trap in the same way. So that is a bit of background to this myth. If you head over to the wonderful world that is Reddit, there are several threads on this. Basically, the first thread you'll come across, it just says, what happened to Lindsay Lohan's twin sister who appeared in The Parent Trap? And the response is, they harvested her organs when Lindsay's drug use took its toll. Now, going into that element of it, people are trying to spotlight on the fact that Lindsay Lohan did go through some troubles with drugs later in her career, was down to the loss of her sister. So they're trying to fabricate a narrative there. I definitely think that this is a bit of a parody thread because another response is living with Katie Mills' twin sister. So <laughs> nice uh, definitely one. a joke on there. <laughs> and then another thread from three years ago says, whatever happened to Lindsay Lohan's twin sister, Tatiana Lohan, from The Parent Trap? So obviously given her a name. And then a response to this was, her name was Kelsey and she died during a car accident. Disney had poured a lot of money into this movie and they didn't want it to fail, so they covered up her death. Lindsay Lohan's parents went along with it because they wanted money. I've dedicated my life to finding evidence for it and have compiled a lot. Watching behind-the-scenes footage, you can find multiple mistakes where Kelsey and Lindsay are both visible. During interviews about Lindsay playing two characters, the people are crying because they're covering up the death of a wonderful girl. And during a meet-up the family segment, there is a weird cut as it goes from Lindsay's mum to her dad. Again, this is just crazy talk, to be honest. I even remember like when I got the VHS of The Parent Trap, I'm pretty sure there was a special feature at the end. I always knew it was one actress. But the argument people are trying to say about this one is that the technology wasn't there to create this effect. But Lindsay Lohan had a body double throughout the film and then she would say one line of dialogue and then have the other sister's dialogue in her ear in an earpiece so she was able to react to it and it was revolutionary for the time but again if they could make the 1960s parent trap and have the same actress playing twins why not in 1998 this is so so weak but so crazy that people have just come up with this ridiculousness um, but I'm, I'm here for it it's, it's honestly the most batshit one we've so far oh it's absolutely bonkers this one because it gets to shazam level when you've got people saying i've devoted my life to uncovering all the evidence on this because this is exactly 
the sort of thing that people are saying about Shazam Kazam. So it's getting to that level of obsessiveness. And with the technology, if they could do it in the 60s, then they can certainly do it in the 90s. They did it in the 80s. There's an 88 movie called Big Business, which has got two sets of twins, Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. And they were on screen at the same time in that. So it's there. I mean, I think you can possibly see the join a little bit in Big Business occasionally, but it was there. You can do it. You can have certain camera angles and you can do trick photography. And all of that stuff was there. And they probably refined it quite a bit by the time they came around to the remake of The Parent Trap. So, yeah, I think it's people not believing what they see on the screen to a certain extent that you can't have that level of trickery in a movie. It has to be two people. In certain circumstances, they do use two sets of actors. We're going back to Poltergeist 3. For a certain effect sequence in Poltergeist 3 where there's a mirrored room, they had two sets of actors and they were mirroring each other's movements. But you couldn't see the face of some of the actors, so that was cleverly disguised. But here, it is all trickery. I do like the fact that Lindsay Lohan has got several iterations of her twin sister, Tatiana, who came to a sticky end but they all seem to have come to sticky ends by different means. Wasn't there something that was a, was it a fencing accident at one point for, for one of them? Yes. So um, this one on a separate thread again says, in the parent trap 1998, Lindsay Lohan was cast as Anne. Her twin sister, Mindy Lohan, got <laughs> Mindy now as well as a Kelsey and a Tatiana, was cast as Hallie. However, after the sword fighting scene went wrong and Mindy was killed, Lindsay Lohan played both roles and they opted for a fencing scene instead. I mean, it's honestly crazy. Like you'd kill somebody in a cell fighting scene and go, oh, that's fine, let's just carry on with the movie. She looks like the other one. Let's just do the rest of the movie with one of them. There's this poor kid that's dead from sword injuries. But it's like, oh, don't worry about that. We'll sort that out in post-production. It's fine. Nobody will notice the joy. It is absolutely batshit crazy, this one. And kudos to anybody who's generating all of these theories because all of them are completely ludicrous and hilarious as well. I had such a good time reading up on some of this stuff for this particular urban legend. God knows what Lindsay Lohan makes of it. Yeah, I haven't been able to find any evidence of her being interviewed about it, but I would would honestly love to know whether she would discuss it like Sinbad did and maybe uh, take the piss out of it a bit. But I think... This is where the rumour was fueled. So somebody has posted on Reddit, just found out that Lindsay Lohan had played her own twin in two separate and related films, The Parent Trap and I Know Who Killed Me 2007. So I think that the plot of I Know Who Killed Me, which I haven't seen, but I think the plot of it is something to do with a twin being murdered. And this, this must be people thinking that Lindsay made this film to put out a message about what happened Disney covering up. Again, it's Disney covering up again. This does not hold any weight. It, it's pure fiction. It's entertaining fiction, but it, it is honestly some yeah. of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Because if eight-year-old me was aware during 1998 that this was the one actress playing both roles, and equally, I knew the difference with It Takes Two, that it was twin sisters playing the roles. A kid isn't stupid. No, basically. exactly. And I the think internet is. The, inter- <laughs> oh, the, inter- the internet is very stupid. Yeah, that is undoubtedly true. The one thing we can take away from all of these urban legends is that 
Disney is a worldwide conspiracy generator. In fact, Disney has quashed so many things happening. They've suppressed more facts than the Nixon administration of the 70s. If you're anything to do with Disney, try and dig into it. There must, there must be a vault of stuff that Disney has covered up over the decades. It's fun. And when it's this ridiculous and nobody is getting particularly hurt about it, I don't mind this sort of legend cropping up because it does give me a good laugh. The whole thing where they've generated a completely fictional sibling for Lindsay Lohan and then have them undergo various tragic ends. Again, it's like people dying, people dying on movie sets. People are obsessed with people dying on movie sets, even if they're fictional people. It always seems to come back to, oh, there was a terrible accident. And yeah, this is where people's minds wander when they're talking about the making of movies. It's nothing to do with the technical aspects because they're boring. And it's nothing to do with the performances and you know how they got certain things to work because that's boring as well. Let's have somebody die on set because that's interesting. We like crime. You know, the wave of true crime stuff. Leading on from that, Let's have fictional crime as well. Let's have crime happening on movie sets. Let's have terrible accidents happening to people and they get covered up. Entire bits of families get forgotten about. But the fact that nobody seems to know, well, or nobody seems to be able to settle on what Lindsay Lohan's twin sister is called is really hilarious to me. Tatiana, Mindy, Kelsey, take your pick. Oh, it's honestly crazy stuff, but I think it was a, a fun one to end on specifically as it does blow your mind a bit when you think about it, but it's more blowing your mind in the sense of how ridiculous internet conspiracy theorists can be. It's all for entertainment. So I think, you know, at some point the internet is there for uh, pure joy and entertainment. And I think people have had a lot of time on their hands in the last few years, so are going to start inventing things. Hope you enjoyed this urban legend journey with us. It's been a blast. And I know there are so many out there. So as I said at the beginning, let us know what your favourites are and if you agree with any of ours and if you have some unique takes on the ones we've talked about as well. We can talk about this all day. With that said, 100th episode. Can't believe we are on number 100. Thank you to everyone for sticking with us, for trudging through Hallmark, Mandela Effects, conspiracy theories public information films horror movies weird movies just everything there's been so much on here and there is more to come but thank you to everyone who's taking time to listen to us whether it's one episode or 100 episodes 50 episodes however many you've listened to thank you and hope you've enjoyed this weird and wild journey with us yes i can only reiterate that thanks to everybody who has stuck with us and thanks to everybody who's picked us up recently. And if you're out there, Mindy Lohan, we're thinking of you. <laughs> and of course, big thank you to Darren, who edits all these episodes and gets them out there for us. We couldn't do it without him. So Thank you. And also thanks to Michael Staley, who has had to sit here for 100 episodes and listen to my ranting about various movies, to a point where most people would have told me to fuck off. It's a bonus to have a co-host that's so understanding of my grumpiness. And we do have to mention the incredible Mitch Bain, who has provided the music for our podcast. So massive shout out to Mitch. We love you. Yep. Thank you so much to Mitch. And again, to everybody 
just everyone who's made this possible. We have a lot of fun doing it, and we're going to continue bringing you some really weird films. So with that said, let's just raise a glass. 100 episodes of HD Movie Podcast. Cheers, everybody. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 100 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. You've got a hundred episodes to check out if you haven't already. So come and join us over on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. We'd love to have you over there. So we start the second century of episodes. Episode 101. Well, as we've been talking about urban legends for this entire episode, I wonder what movie we're going to do next time. This is 1998. Jamie Blanks directed... Urban Legend, which is one of my favourite 90s slasher movies. I don't love it as much as Scream, I'll put that out there now, but it's definitely a fun sleepover style movie and I can't wait to revisit it once again. So, until then, stay safe everybody, here's to the next 100, we'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.